Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Chris Dor QC, a criminal defence lawyer for over 25 years and the recent author of Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. Chris and I discuss every aspect of the UK criminal justice system, what it is, where it currently fails, and how we can go about fixing it. Let's get into it. So hi, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem, Harry. Good to meet you. It's great to have you here. And first and foremost, congratulations on the, on the book launch. I think as we speak, it's a few weeks since since uh, this has come to print. And, um, and, and very, very much thanks again for the advanced copy. And in all honesty, I've been looking forward to this episode because this is on something which is completely out of my depth. So I'm looking forward to this being a learning experience, both for um, obviously myself and my listeners as well. Yeah. Um, and as I'm sure people listening will know, I'm you know going into the commercial side of practice as a solicitor and uh, to sit down with someone who's on the other side of the coin in two senses, a barrister and the criminal side of the world. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to kind of learning from yourself and, and discussing the kind of talking points um, of the book and kind of focusing on, I think, the overarching theme of today is kind of the reform of the criminal justice system system and um, what's going right and obviously what what's going wrong as, wrong as well. But I think perhaps before we get too much into that kind of stuff, just a nice kind of icebreaker would be, um, you know, why did you originally want to work within the law and for people who haven't had the chance to meet you, what's your sort of background to date? Well, my background was I grew up in uh, Milton Keynes, um, went to a very ordinary comprehensive school there um, and didn't really engage that much with, with school uh, in my kind of early life. Um, but I was just very, very lucky because I ended up at the age of 16 going to a, a really good state sixth form college, one of the best in the country, just by mm-hmm. sheer chance because my, my parents happened to move down the road from it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was, you know, what set me on, on the course that I eventually reached in terms of academic success and, and, you know, entering a sort of professional life. Um, uh, and, and I think, I mean, that, there's a real lesson in there for me. And, and I guess for, for some of your listeners who are kind of younger, uh, aspiring lawyers is that, you know, you, you, you really have to, to, to kind of take the opportunities that you get, um, particularly with education, um, and, and, and run with it because, uh, mm. Because it really is the only route into our profession. There's, there, you know, there are other walks of life that you can have great success in without any kind of academic background. But law is one that really you just have to focus on that sort of education and academic side. Um, so that was my background. And, um, and then um, having done A-levels, uh, I spent a bit of time working in business uh, and then went to Manchester and read law at Manchester University. Um, and, and sort of carried on from there and, uh, into, into a sort of conventional criminal pupillage. Um, and from there, you know, I've now been at the criminal bar for over 25 years, um, you know, and I've been in silk for nearly eight. So, um, so you know, I've, I've seen it all in criminal practice and, um, uh, you know, from sort of the, the, the depravity and deprivation of, 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 you know, some of the sort of the worst of crimes to, you know, ordinary people caught up in in a criminal justice system uh, in a way that really d- reflects very badly on the system, uh, you know, and, and people who have become themselves sort of embroiled in almost like Kafkaesque nightmares, um, you know, at the hands of the state. So so I've seen it all. I've seen the innocent sort of put through the ringer and I've seen the guilty kind of get away with things. And, and, and you know, also most of the time I've seen the system work and, and, and I've seen a lot of kindness and a lot of uh, decency as well, particularly... Uh, you know, it, it, you know, in, in the um, uh, the caring sort of side of uh, the profession, but also, you know, I see jurors, ordinary people coming off the streets and 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 using their, you know, their their common sense and their basic decency to 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 reach the right verdict. So it's mm. it's been a fascinating twenty five twenty six year journey, uh, and I've seen pretty much everything that you can see in 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 the world of crime and punishment, and um, and hopefully the book. 
is uh, is a product of of some of that and 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 allows other people to get a glimpse into the world that I've lived. Yeah, I think that's definitely sort of reflected in the writing style. I think for each of the kind of key points we're going to cover today, you do a great job of kind of using examples and knowing sort of anecdotal and personal experiences to kind of help prove, I guess, the kind of I guess knee-jerk reactions that people who are outside of the system might have to some of these sort of claims and questions that we're going to be um, discovering. But I guess just on that point of all of your sort of breadth of experience and how you've kind of seen things working to date, um, if you were to grade the, the sort of current criminal justice system you know, in the UK as is, um, What's your sort of verdict on kind of where we are now and whether or not it is, quote unquote, working? Well, as you know, the book's called Justice on Trial and, and mm-hmm. I put justice on trial in the book and I found justice guilty mm-hmm. uh, of, of being completely unfit for purpose, basically. I think the system just doesn't do what it should, which is to focus on outcomes. Um, it focuses much more on people's emotional response to to crime and to terrible events, um, yeah. rather than saying, how do we actually make things work? How do we how do we reduce the number of victims of crime? How do we, you know, improve communities which are blighted by gang violence and knife murder and, 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 and gun crime? And at the moment, the system simply churns out more criminals and, and, and in larger numbers and, and makes crime worse. Um, <clears throat> so it's a complete failure, in my opinion. And, and it's depressing to spend you know, a working lifetime in a, in a, in an environment, which fundamentally I think doesn't work. I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the book that, you know, if, if the, if a car manufacturer was as unsuccessful in producing cars as we are in our criminal justice system, you know, if 40% of cars broke down completely in the first year, as is sort of the recidivism statistic in the criminal justice system, um, and 75% overall recidivism for, for people going into prison, um, you know, you, no one would ever buy that car and the, the company would go bust. But but we keep the system going and we, we keep it going with our taxpayers' money. Um, and and, and the, the, the biggest tragedy of all, the biggest failure of all, is that the worst impact of the failure is on the victims of crime because there are more of them than there need to be. And many of them are harmed. And, you know, I've, I've spent time in the last year or so filming for for the BBC and, and sitting down with victims of, of crime and, their, and the families of those who've been murdered you know, and, and, and in every single case, you know, the, the system had at some point failed them and led to directly or indirectly to, 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 a, to a death that needn't have happened. And, and so by, by any rational measure, my kind of verdict, as you'll have gathered from the book, is that we're failing in absolutely critical areas of how we approach sentencing, how we approach children and young people. And, and, and crucially for me, as a sort of theme running through the book is the 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 failure of the war on drugs which has been Mm. such a catastrophic failure for 50 or more years Uh, and and it's a big reason why we're in the mess that we are and, and throughout the book, you kind of propose these sort of four primary talking points with regards, regards to sort of sweeping actions that um, at first might seem sort of, uh, I don't know, a bit too brash or a bit too sort of sweeping. But I think when you get down to the details and you realize the sort of statistics behind um, these kind of inferences that you're drawing, that there's some real kind of um, merit to these claims. And the first is obviously to do with um, closing prisons or at least reforming prisons from their from their current system. And I must admit, when I first sort of saw the headline and I, I read that opinion, the first thing that came to mind, which you actually do mention in the book, um, was this was this documentary I saw? I think it was on YouTube of Norwegian and Scandinavian prison systems, and uh, you know if the, the title could have been something like MTV Cribs, and I would have been a bit of an eyelid. You know these guys walking around with you know amenities and TVs and really kind of um, you know things that would be comparable to an average sort of middle class home. Um, and, you know, compare that to things you see on, on American TV or in, in generally otherwise in the media, of you know, hell behind bars and beyond scared straight in these kind of really punitive and punishment driven systems. Um, it was just such a stark difference to me. And I think that the fact that was re- reflected in the recidivism rates as well is, is kind of a really core theme behind.
behind this question, but at least from your perspective, um, what is it about the prison system now that has been so favorable and, and, and what are the kind of core components as to why the prison system now isn't working? Well, the main issue is that much of the prison estate in the UK is very old. Um, so mm-hmm. there are still these Victorian institutions like Strangeways in Manchester, these huge Victorian prisons, which, whilst there's been a degree of modernisation, are, are pretty much the same in structure as prisons were 100, 150, even 200 years ago. Um, and, and the entire design of prisons was designed to make prisons feel like they were in an alien environment and not part of society. So the problem with that is that if you if you make the environment so alien, if you make it very, you know, very limited access to daylight, if you make the whole <coughs> daily routine entirely different to the routine of anyone on the outside, um, the longer that someone is in that environment, um, the, the more likely it is that the, the day after they come out, they will, as, you know, one of the expressions I've used is, you know, blinking in the sunlight and, and, and having <coughs> no uh, no ability to work or to... Uh, to operate, you know, they've often lost their family connections, they've lost their, you know, employment, they've lost their home, and they come out with nothing. And, and you know, if you if you basically, I, I mean, prisons to me essentially are warehouses for the human spirit. They destroy the human spirit, and they, and and people come out of prison sort of angry. They come out criminally much more sophisticated than when they went in. They often come out with drug problems that they didn't have when they went in. And and you know, I told the story of couple of people who, who've been through the system and one in particular, Gethin Jones, who who went into prison with had never taken heroin and came out a heroin addict and then spent mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years in and out of prison because he, he he had a heroin habit that he got in prison. So essentially it's a combination of things. But the main theme behind that chapter, which is mm-hmm. as you know, as you say, it's a bold chapter name to say why we should close all prisons. But um but what I'm saying in effect is we should close all the prisons we have now, one by one. And we should gradually reopen prisons along the Norwegian model, which is dramatically more successful in terms of outcomes. Um, and, and so the, the main kind of overriding theme on the prison issue is that the prisons we have simply fail. They fail <clears throat> in the sense that they lead to, in the long run, much more crime than the other alternative, more uh, uh, reform and more rehabilitation focused systems like those in Norway. Uh, which are incredibly successful uh, at, at rehabilitating people and getting them back into mainstream society, keeping their links with their families, keeping them in employment and giving them somewhere to live, which are the three main things which people lose in the English prison system and which therefore lead to them becoming a, a, a long-term recidivist criminal. And and, and I talk I talk in, there, in the book, there's a, a former client of mine who, for the book's purposes, is called Mike. Um, and he... He, he had been in prison for about 30 years and he was in his early 50s and he'd never really done anything that wrong. It's just that he had become so institutionalized in prison that he, he actually preferred being in there. And, and mm. when you have a system that, it, that is, it, it, it places people so in a state of being, a, being othered by society, you know, they're, they're completely excluded from society. They will remain so, and they'll either remain so by going back into prison where they kind of are at home, or they'll remain so by committing crime and thereby kind of, um, you know, uh, fighting against the society that has excluded them. And, and you know, it's, the evidence is so clear on that. You know, I, I talk about the American model, you know, of mass incarceration, millions <clears> and millions, 2.3, 2.4 million Americans in prison. Uh, at any one time, which is the, by far the largest population and the largest rate of imprisonment in the world. 
And and you know, okay, you you would say to yourself, okay, they've got the, they they use prison, you know, like that's the medicine that the Americans have chosen. So has it cured the patient? Has it has it? Do they have no crime because they use prison so so extensively and for such long periods and such, in such harsh conditions? And of course, as anybody who knows anything about America, let alone criminal justice, knows, America has some of the highest rates of violent crime and homicide in the world. Mm. So. Whereas those countries like Norway, which adopt a rehabilitation focused model and where the prisons actually, as you rightly say, I'm not sure about MTV Cribs. I know, I know you're saying that sort of <laughs> slightly in jest, but, but you know, the, 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 you make a good point in the sense that the, the idea of the Norwegian model is to make the prisons as normal as possible so that there isn't the shock to the system when people come out and they don't come out and think, Oh my God, I can't function. They come out and it's actually just a, a, a gradual process of reintegration into society. It's not, it's not like like jumping off the edge of a cliff, which is the experience of coming out of an English prison. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the results speak for themselves, don't they? If, if people don't reoffend, uh, and, and in large measure, uh, that's the case, um, then that surely is something we should look to uh, emulate rather than trying to follow the American model of mass incarceration, which is, um, sadly is the direction of travel we've been going in for the last 20 years or more. Mm, no, absolutely. I must admit, I'm quite excited to get into the role of devil's advocate so early in this podcast and to get into the kind of whataboutism, I guess, as a response. But um, w- would you say there's a concern for, you know, the fact that if these kind of prisoners are being treated with, okay, clearly not a sense of luxury, but, you know, being given these sense of basic communities, but that, or, or just the, the enjoyable kind of tenants of everyday life, there's a sense of, well, the moral kind of wrong, or there's a moral kind of deficit or penalty as to the fact that these people have um, at least in some circumstances, I, you know, it's quite clear that a lot of the times background does play a role. But then in some circumstances, people who do wrong should have the right to enjoy, you know, TV and 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 pool and pool tables and in the in the, in the sort of communal rooms and everything else. So that mindset <laughs> and that sort of retribution, punitive kind of uh, philosophy of, of of custody and and of, of of harsh sanction goes back thousands of years. And I talk in the book about you know the systems of justice in the, in the Mayan civilizations, in Greek and Roman times, you know, which were very brutal and were very focused on sort of punishment and extracting revenge uh, for crimes committed. Um, and, and if you, you know, if you think about it, you know, the, the, what we've done is we've kind of, in some respects, we've carried on with that particular philosophy of crime and punishment. But it's just a hangover from societies which were very different. I mean, those societies also, all, almost entirely, uh, were, were, were quite accepting of slavery, of all sorts of other, you know, of, of, of the, tr- the very poor treatment of, of women um, uh, and, and, and other sort of minorities uh, in any society. Uh, and, and that was entirely acceptable. And, and, and the same mindset, the same kind of basic philosophy of, um, you know, we, we, you know, retribution, eye for an eye, that Old Testament kind of philosophy. Well, <clears throat> why do we carry on with that? If we, we, there's many other aspects of the approach to, 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 to the way we organize society, which we would look back in horror and think about, you know, why are we doing things the way they did them in Rome, in the Roman era? Like I say, slavery being a good example, but for some reason or other, we, we we've accepted this kind of um, punitive model of punishment and and moral punishment, as you say, in a way that you know really, I, I for me, it feels entirely outdated because. Be, be, largely because the evidence suggests that you know you, the more that you punish people, whether it be physically or whether by whether by locking them up very long periods, the, 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 mm-hmm. the worse the outcomes. So the worse the outcomes, not just for them, but the outcomes for all of us. So it costs us, mm-hmm. of course, vast amounts of money 
to keep people in prison for long time for a long period of time and the more um, punitive the conditions the more unpleasant the prison conditions the more alienated the prisoners become and the more unlikely it is they'll ever become a law-abiding tax-paying citizen so if people and I, and I kind of accept and I, I suppose I deal with it in the book which is the the political dynamic which is <clears> that you know politicians often win election on a tough on crime in inverted commas tough on crime mandate you know on the basis of long prison and sentences, getting tough on criminals. And if people vote for that kind of um, rhetoric, then, you know, they'll get what they vote for. But what they'll also get when they vote for it, as is, as the Americans have found, is vast taxpayers' money spent on warehousing millions of people, sometimes for an entire lifetime, and much higher levels of violent crime on the streets. So if people accept that there's a huge financial cost for their emotional desire for punishment, and that they will be much more likely, and their families will be much more likely to be the victims of crime, as a result of that desire for an, you know, a, a harsh sanction, then people need to accept that with their eyes open. But what they can't do is say, we want reduced crime, we want to crack down and have less crime, but we want you to implement policies that time and again have been proven to increase crime and make it worse and cost more money. So if people are not prepared to listen to the evidence, and I hope I've set out the evidence in the book with a degree of clarity and concision. I mean, it's not a lengthy book. It's not a sort of huge, complex law book. It's a, you know, it's a relatively short book and the chapters are relatively short and accessible, I hope. And I've mm. kind of tried to set out there the really crystal clear evidence for all of the things that are wrong with being punitive in your approach. And and your point about, you know, do do people complain about, you know, prisoners living in holiday camps and, and all of that kind of stuff? Well, those who do, I suspect, in the main, have never been to prison. Because <clears throat> anybody who has been to prison will tell you that they are soul-destroying, soulless places. If they were so jolly and happy, why is the rate of self-harm in prison many, many times higher than the rate in the rest of society? Why is the rate of suicide so many times higher than the rate in the rest of society if prisons are so wonderful and if everyone's having such a jolly time in there? It doesn't make any sense. The levels of mental illness and serious mental health problems are incredibly high in the prison environment. And, and that's partly because the prison, uh, the criminal justice system has been used as a safety net or a kind of, uh, you know, almost to, to, to capture the, 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 the mental health problems that have fallen off the health system because of lack of proper resources in the health system. But it's also because being in prison, the environments that we place people in aggravate mental health symptoms and make people ill. And, and is that really the moral kind of, kind of uh, objective that we have as a society that we will warehouse people make them more likely to commit suicide more likely to harm themselves more likely to be mentally ill and more likely to come out and commit crime because if that's what we want as a society and that's what we consider to be moral then then we're getting what we want but but i i consider morality to be a rather different thing which is that you know morality is about trying to improve society not to make it worse um and and we are making it worse by the way in which we uh, use criminal justice increasingly as one of the only weapons to try and fight against what are often very complex social issues in communities, you know. Um, mm. But also, you know, much of the criminal justice system, and I'm sure we're going to come on to, uh, is, is basically entirely created by the artifice of drug prohibition. And if that mm. what didn't exist, much of what is now the criminal justice system wouldn't exist either. Because, you know, if you artificially create a prohibition of a natural substance or even man-made substances, 
as the Americans found during prohibition of alcohol, what you do is you massively increase the amount of organized crime activity and the amount of crime in communities. And, and, and so, but it's entirely artificial because, you, you know, it's the state that chooses to, to implement prohibition. And then having done so, the state then has to live with the consequences, which is that you've then created a whole new layer of criminality, which didn't <clears> exist before you did it. So, um, you know, I just think that mor- morality is really important, but actually what should drive policy when it comes to criminal justice or pretty much anything else is the evidence of what works. And at the moment, mm. we're ignoring the evidence of what works and we're doing things that fail our society. Mm. Well, and on the element of the drug problem as well, as you kind of outlined them, I, I think there's a great sort of a quote I'd paraphrase from the book, which is that we collectively as a society are absolving our responsibility for the current drug problem and are instead sort of surrendering both the solution and the supply and everything else to the criminal underworld. And that's certainly an element that uh, that you sort of covered in your answer there. So um, I guess uh, on the basis of that, you, you talk about we should legalize um, drugs. If we could start over with a clean slate, um, what would you kind of view as, a, as an ideal solution to this admittedly current problem, both from a criminal perspective and obviously from a health one as well? Well, if you started with a clean slate, of course, drugs you, drugs would be legal because <clears throat> because you have to positively act to prohibit something to make it <clears throat> illegal to possess it or sell it. So it's not the drugs themselves that are illegal; it's the possession and supply of them, of course. But <clears throat> but um but but you would start with everything being legal, and 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 if uh, or, and, and you know because that's the way the law works. You know, until you until you criminalise or uh, prohibit something, it, it's allowed. You you're allowed to do it. Um, but but so but it, if I was starting, as it were, with a clean sheet of paper and looking at how to how to manage the issue of drug supply in communities and in the country more generally, I, I think it's fairly straightforward. You have to license, you have to legalize, but most importantly, you have to regulate the supply of drugs. So you know, you, the, the minute you you kind of absolve yourself of those responsibilities. So if you if you don't if you make drug if you prohibit drugs completely as we do now mo- most most drugs. Um, you 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 simply hand over the entire drug market to people whose only motive is profit, and that's drug dealers. And it's very interesting to me, having obviously acted for many very serious and large scale drug suppliers in my career, that the one thing they all agree on is that the that prohibition is a good thing. I mean, you'll never get a drug dealer to argue for the legalization of drugs because if the minute drugs are legal the profit margin is basically removed or significantly reduced because it's the it's the prohibition that creates the opportunity to profit from the illegal market mm-hmm. um so so i would start my clean sheet of paper would be a simple one all all drugs would be regulated so just as you regulate the quality of toys or cars or furniture or or anything else you would regulate the quality the dosage the uh, and you would make sure there were clear health messages and health warnings as they are for when you go and buy paracetamol or, or when you, when you, when you know, when, when you take or buy any licensed or legal, legal drug product. So, so you would regulate the, the quality. You would regulate the strength. You would have clear labeling. Um, and then you would license the supply chain. So that would mean that you would have licensed dispensaries. Uh, probably, I think uh, I would prefer a non-profit model. So I, I think licensed state dispensaries, certainly a, <clears throat> for a trial period, would be the way to go rather than introducing the profit model, which, of course, we have in the alcohol and tobacco markets, which are also very significant um, uh, drugs, which are, uh, of course, are legal and licensed and regulated. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not overly happy about introducing a profit model or a branding or a commercial element to the supply of drugs because I think that the danger there is that you do end up with 
the suppliers then becoming uh, looking to maximize usage, which which you <clears> want to avoid uh, very much. You want to make supply accessible within reason via licensed and uh, regulated networks. What you don't want to do is have have a commercial and legal model of pushing drugs on people and trying to get them to take as many as possible, which to a degree is what happens sadly in the alcohol industry. You know, you still got alcohol advertising, you still got all sorts of promotion of alcohol and, and, and positive, you know, special offers to buy large amounts of alcohol. And, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have that in the drug market. Um, so, and as far as legalization is concerned, well, of course, you you would legalize that you know, provided people have bought their their drugs through a licensed uh, supply network and through through a licensed dispensary, then then there will be no crime in either possessing it or using it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would thereby give. First of all, you would wipe out the criminal organized crime element to the supply network, um, and uh, completely because there'd be no market uh, um, uh, reason for for for, for a, an illegal pr- supply to exist, provided you kept the pricing structure at a level that that organized crime couldn't compete with. Um, and, and 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 perhaps equally importantly, and I saw this to a degree when I travelled to Switzerland, um, and I speak about that in the book. You know, the consumption rooms and the various other kind of fairly humane uh, environments in which people can 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 take and use drugs in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, you immediately give drug users access to help if they want it, if and when they want it. So in Switzerland, those who go to take their own heroin or other drugs uh, in the consumption rooms are also given access to HIV testing, to hepatitis testing, and to drug counselling if they want it, rehab services. And so, um, I mean, no drug dealer does that. No drug dealer says, hey, have you, you know, make sure you're using a clean needle and we'll, we'll make sure you get an HIV test if you need one. I mean, obviously, <clears> that's not the way drug dealers work. They don't care about the health of their users other than making them use as much drug as possible. So the fact of the matter is the, the experience is clear. If you adopt that license, regulated and legal marketplace and supply chain, what you end up with is healthier users, drug users, because they can access medical facilities. And, and many of them who go through the Swiss system in respect of heroin, which is one of the most addictive drugs, come off drugs. About 80% over time come off drugs in a way that doesn't happen in the UK prohibited heroin market. Um, but they're overall healthier. But, but you know, people might say to themselves, oh, well, that's all very well for the heroin users. But what about us, the public, who have to pay for it all? And the answer is you'll be paying a lot less than you pay now for criminalizing this activity. And you will be you will end up with much, much less crime. So you'll be much less likely to get burgled. You'll be much less likely to get robbed on the street of your mobile phone and, and, and you know, and, and all the all the other crimes that people commit to buy drugs. Um, and so essentially the system is one that, that, that largely it's self-funding. It will cost us less financially. And once again, as with the kind of reform of prisons that I propose, you will end up with much less consequential crime. This episode of the More From Law podcast is sponsored by Get Into Law. If you're listening, it's like you're looking to break into or learn more about the legal profession. Get Into Law are a law careers advice community that's on a mission to build the most active, value-driven legal platform in the world through social media. They help support aspiring lawyers by providing skills, tools and resources you need to begin your legal career. If you want access to their latest daily tips, guides and resources, including some I've written myself, be sure to follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn by searching for the handle Get Into Law. So obviously we talked a lot this episode about those sort of first two initial points of, of prisons and drug usage. And I think it's quite clear that both in this conversation and throughout the book, the sort of common analogies and the themes that can kind of link between those two. And your other two sort of core components of, of, of fixing this criminal justice system rely on sort of children and, and then this kind of greater idea of ideology and radicalism and, and, and morality as well, which we sort of touched on. So 
on that first point, the point of how children are are never criminals. So uh, obviously in the in the in the UK, the age of sort of criminal responsibility is ten years old, which the first time I I found that out really shocked me. I think I always kind of imagined it being a lot higher than that. Um, and for people who don't know, criminal responsibility kind of invokes the the the, the limit to which you can sort of be trialed and and and, and commit a crime per se in terms of it actually being actionable. But um, throughout your sort of experiences uh, and obviously your, your, your history of sort of being able to work with this broad variety of people, including children, um, where do they fit into this current sort of criminal justice system? And, and is it fair or right to, to trial children and or young offenders with, with an adult form of justice or the system as it, as it currently stands? Well, at the moment, as you say, the, 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 the children as young as 10 can be placed before even an adult court, like a crown court, and, and face the full might of a sort of jury trial uh, for, for for a crime when at an age when they are a long way from being allowed to do many other things. And so they're not treated as being mature enough to vote. They're not considered mature enough to drive a car or to drink alcohol or any of the other things that have age restrictions on them. But for some reason, which I'm afraid I don't fully get, um, I, I genuinely don't understand other than it's a historical holdover from the past um, they are they are deemed completely capable of processing uh, uh, you know the the uh, intellectual and the moral and the in you know the intent um, required to commit a serious criminal offense now now mm-hmm. I, I I have children myself and I have you know I have children uh, who are under 10 and children who are just over 10 um, and you know I have an 11 year old and a nine-year-old for example and the idea that either of them, have the maturity to to um, formulate criminal intent. Uh, they, they, of course, they they know in the broadest sense right from wrong, uh, but it's a very you know basic understanding, and it's a very kind of, and, and you know children often come out with things which you just re- which makes you realise that they are completely incapable of processing information in the same way as an adult, uh, even where they appear to be mature and even if they, you know, appear uh, are sort of intelligent and articulate children, they're still, they are still children and they are not capable of the same uh, moral decision-making and moral understanding and nuances of, of thought as adults. And so th- 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 my basic premise is that, that you know, you have to, as, as they've done in Luxembourg, as I, as I uh, discuss in the book, I I think you have to decide at the age at which people have not only all of the responsibilities of being of the criminal law, but all of the rights that come with being a grown up and being a full citizen of a country. And in Luxembourg, they have married the two together and they've said you you can't commit a crime until you're 18 and you can't vote until you're 18. And that seems to me a very sensible and rational approach. You're you're saying that's the age at which you you come of age and you are considered mature enough to participate fully in, in society as an adult. Uh, and, and But we take this bizarre approach of criminalising uh, children. And, and, you know, it's not just the extreme examples, because very rarely, in fact, a 10-year-old enter the criminal justice system. But it's pretty common for 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds to enter the criminal justice system, and very common for 16 and 17-year-olds too. And they can end up in young offenders institutions, which are basically adult prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I describe the conditions in the book of just how uh, how hellish those conditions are in many cases. Um, and, and that's just wrong uh, uh, because they are still children. And many of them have been in the care system, as, as I also mentioned in the book. You know, the, 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 one of the most shocking statistics that I came across along the journey of writing the book was that, that prisoners, um, are, or, or rather those who have been in the care system as children, are 15 times more likely 
to go to prison than it, than the average outside who who weren't in care. And 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 if you just step back from for a moment, and, and you know all this talk about how terrible prisoners are, and it's just awful these criminals, these young hooligans, and so on. Well, hold on, they were in the care system. That that means they were in our care. As a society and as taxpayers, we had care of them. We were their parent, in effect. And we've created a situation where they become 15 times more criminogenic than the rest of the population, even though, as a matter of just basic common sense, they're not born 15 times more criminal. We've done it to them in the care system. So I think we brutalise children. We treat them deeply unfairly. And, and going back to your question uh, uh, about punishment in the prison system, you know, what's the morality here? Well, the morality mm. is children are children, and we need to treat children as children. And there are a tiny number of children who are dangerously violent. And often they have serious psychiatric problems, or they have other kind of very serious emotional behavioural problems, not usually caused by them, usually caused by their environment and the way they've been treated as young children. And we have a duty of care, to, even to the most violent ones, but, the, but, but many, many of the children who end up in the justice system are not violent at all. They may be involved in antisocial behaviour, they may be involved in stealing. And what they need is they need society to be to care for them and, and yes, to protect the public from the risk of crime from them, but not by criminalising them. And basically, once you criminalise a child, you may as well give up on that child because they will end up, as night follows day, becoming a revolving door criminal and in and out criminal justice for most of their lives. And, and we're mm. responsible for that decision making and we need to change the way we, we, we do things. Mm. And I, I think that re leads on really nicely, actually, to, to the sort of final point on a sort of broader sense of morality on, on good and evil and the role that background and radicalization and a sort of pathway through life and, and how that can kind of affect um, what people end up going from that sort of background as children to how they act in the modern day um, with your sort of final chapter on people are being neither good nor evil. And in the book, you, you advocate this really nicely through an example of um, the, the sort of Jack Merrick um, murder and the kind of comparison between the man who did it and the man who tried to, to intervene. So, um, you know, based based on your sort of experiences and everything that you've obviously been doing and perhaps using that as an example, um, what role do you think, if any, people's ideology, conviction of values, faith or, or otherwise um, has to play in explaining their crimes or, or, or otherwise sort of driving them? I think most crime, I mean, you've got to separate out two kinds of crime here. I think it's really important. And I, and I, I give the figure in the book that 69% of those in prison are non-violent offenders. So the, yes, they, they may have committed a crime, of course, as we would define crime, but they haven't hurt anybody physically. They're not the sorts of criminals that most of members of the public are most afraid of. You know, most people, when they think about being the victim of crime, are most afraid of being assaulted, of being sexually assaulted or harmed in some way, or even be, potentially being murdered or stabbed. Those are the sorts of the really core kind of fears that people have uh, about um, quote unquote um, criminals. Um, so, so, but but most of those who end up in the criminal justice system end up there in large measure because society has failed them in some way. So, society has either failed them through 
the, the failure of the care system, the failure of the education system, the failure of the social services and welfare system when they were children. A society may have failed them because it's failed to intervene uh, in, in situations where there is domestic abuse, domestic violence. Um, and so, and those are all responsibilities of, of society as a whole mm-hmm. to, 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 to deal with those things. But you're right that, I mean, I, I do talk in a little detail about the London Bridge attack and the, the you know, the, the horrific murder of those two young people uh, on London Bridge. Um, and the, you know, the contrast between Usman Khan, who had been locked up for eight years, uh, complete, you know, day, day after day for eight full years, day and night, 24 hours a day, and came out and within a year killed two people innocent people and 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 for me you know so he had been radicalized as a teenager and again you you have to look at what what's going on in the communities what's going on in terms of you know our ability to uh kind of offer an alternative narrative to young people in certain communities who 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 may be in danger of becoming radicalized and and we're not we're not really addressing that properly when we certainly don't address it by kind of alienating certain communities um, but ultimately, for me, that case is an example of everything that is wrong with the criminal justice system because he is in prison for all the time. You've got a captive audience. You can choose or we can choose as a society what he does all day, every day for eight years. Mm-hmm. And what we chose to do was keep him in high security conditions, locked up with other terrorists and terrorist suspects to continue to discuss the ideological, you know, viewpoint that he had, the violence and, the, and, and everything else that went with it. Um, and we did nothing to address the radicalization. We did nothing to offer education or an alternative narrative. We did nothing to work with him uh, and to make him feel valued as part of British society rather than alienated as a, as, a, as you know, an othered in the way that I described earlier. And, and to me, that case, you know, many people after the the the, the, um, the tragic murders immediately began to say, well, why did why was he only in for eight years? Why wasn't it 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 or what have you? And the, and the interesting thing for me about that case was that the, the loudest voice in opposition to that was David Merritt, who was Jack Merritt's father, or you know Jack Merritt's father, who, who came out within days and, and, and must have been in the most awful grief, of course, because you know, he'd lost not only lost a son, but lost a son of such immense potential and talent um, and, and just a joyful young man. Uh, 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 but, but he'd lost his son. And he came out and said, not in Jack's name. Don't 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 argue for these increased draconian sentences because Jack knew even in his in his early twenties he knew that that failed society and made things worse. So I think I mean I'm I'm maybe not directly answering your question because that could, but but the, but the reason why that story resonated as a, as a, as a as a really good example of a case that showed you that there is no binary good and evil uh, people is because as you rightly point out I then tell the story of two of the men that came to try to assist the victims and try to prevent Usman Khan from committing further violence. And they were convicted killers themselves. And they, but, but, but they had been rehabilitated. And in fact, one of them, I think, had been to Grendon, which is a really one of the few prisons in Britain that really has a, a rehabilitation ethos and really tries to help people and get them, get them an education and get them out of the system in a better shape than when they went in. And he was one of the ones who, who came to the aid of the victims and tried and, and was, you know, undoubtedly, uh, according to the, the reports at the time, was responsible for saving lives or at least stopping more people being injured. And so it's that, it's that. The fact that everybody, even if they may at some point in their life have committed an act that is criminal, for me, the, the problem comes when you say you then put them into the, 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 the camp of being evil because they've committed an act which is clearly wrong. And, and the minute you do that, 
I think you make a mistake because I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but, but, but the Christian faith is very much premised on forgiveness and redemption. And yet much of the narrative that we get from the uh, from certain elements in terms of criminal justice is the opposite of that it's about it's about nothing but old testament punishment and i think we'd be much wiser from a moral point of view to look at things from a genuine christian perspective of redemption and forgiveness because ultimately that is how you you move forward because most people who are in the criminal justice system 99.9% of them will one day be released no matter what they've done they will be released there's only a, a handful that won't and so for me, you know, if you accept that people need to be part of our society and you need to help them to live in a lawful and kind uh, way with the rest of us, you need to treat them kindly uh, and shower them with kindness and, and do things that actually kind of work. And I think if rather than being released, and, and undoubtedly Usman Khan was a classic example. So he spent his entire eight-year sentence in high security conditions in an awful prison I've been to a number of times called Whitemore, which I describe in the book. Um, and, and it's hardly surprising, you chuck someone out of the door of somewhere like that, that the only kind of refuge they can find on the outside is people who still share their sort of um, their, their, their worldview of hatred and, and the desire to harm other people. Because they've been they've been brutalized for eight years by their environment and conditioned by their environment to carry on as they are. So I think I think the morality of it is, and it all ties together. And that, and I was really determined to have an overarching ethos in the book, which was mm. the main reason we go wrong is when we start to decide that some people are not worth trying with, and you need to write them off. And that's what mm -hmm. we currently do. And, um, and and if you do that because you believe they're evil, I think it's mistaken. It's mistaken because I don't believe that fundamentally people are evil. People commit evil deeds, um, and and but but almost everyone is capable of, with the right approach of the criminal justice system, of being put back on the right track. And and that's been proven in countries that do things in a very different way. And I think it's about time we started to, to look at what works rather than just reaching for whatever the emotional response is when there's a terrible crime. So on that basis, if that is the overarching ethos and kind of common sort of theme, as you say, throughout each of these talking points in the book, if you could theoretically, you know, wave the magic wand and implement a, a, a policy or a change to the current justice system as we are, what, what would it be and why and how would that help sort of resolve or at least challenge that sort of ethos we currently have? Well, I think the quickest win, if you want to call it that, would be the, to, 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 to implement uh, radical reform of, of the drug market and, and bring in a licensed and regulated system. It, it, not, none of the things I propose are overnight magic wand solutions. But in my inner thought experiment, if that's what you're asking for, what do I think would, would give us the quickest um, route to reducing human misery, reducing violence and reducing crime? It would be to legalise license and regulate the supply of controlled drugs because we would we would see the prison start to empty out we would see communities uh, start to see an end to gang violence and murder uh, and young people dying on the streets and we would also for, for once start to see humanity in our treatment of those who are addicted to drugs and they're addicted to drugs in such massive numbers purely because we prohibited drugs in the early 1970s in the way that we did uh, i mean we, we went from a thousand or so 
problem heroin users to three or four hundred thousand in a decade mm. post prohibition in 1971, and 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 so we bear responsibility for those high levels of drug uh, addiction uh, and the misery that it causes in the prohibited market and the health damage that comes from from taking prohibited drugs, and we bear the the responsibility of putting it right. So my number one uh, sort of immediate policy uh, <clears throat> solution would be to take a humane approach and a rational approach to drug supply. We could lead the world in that and we would see our criminal justice system emptied out of of, of drug cases and drug-related crime and and we could use our criminal justice system for things that really matter like rape and murder and, and, and serious violence, which is really where the criminal justice system needs to be focused. It doesn't need to be focused on people who are either selling or using a substance, which the human species has been taking for millions of years, as you know from the book, I mean, going back <coughs> almost hundreds of millions of years. Uh, you know, we're never gonna stop it and we need to start um, being sensible about the way we deal with it. So that's my number one, let's legalize and license drugs. Well, given the increasing amount of legislation, uh, legalization we've seen in the US and other sort of decriminalization policies elsewhere in the world, who knows if that that day is ever increasing uh, closer and we'll see this sort of vision realized even sooner. But um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, both in this conversation and in the book, Chris. It was um, really enlightening to speak with you and has, has certainly broadened my own perspective on the criminal justice system, which obviously I've, I've had a very limited sort of exposure to. So where can people go to learn more about yourself and everything you talked about and, of course, the, the book as well? Well, the book's available on from all sort of bookstores, um, uh, Amazon, of course, uh, in audiobook as well as uh, Kindle and uh, on in, in in hardback, and it's uh, currently, I think they've reduced the price to twelve ninety nine um, uh, on Amazon. Um, and people can follow me on Twitter at Crimlaw UK. I have a YouTube channel, Chris Daw QC, which also has a lot of good stuff for law students and aspiring lawyers. Lots of content, um, career tips, and tips on how to to do applications and how to approach interviews and so on. Uh, and that's all on there. Um, and of course, people, you know, people follow follow these various channels. Um, but I, I really hope people read the book, and, and and particularly those who perhaps are not from a criminal law background or going to other areas of practice. Because it really is something that needs lawyers and bright young lawyers in particular to get engaged with and think about. Even if you don't want to practice in criminal law, you know, it'd be great if people start to contribute to the debate. So definitely get, you know, Twitter, obviously, I, I'm all, you, can, you can also follow me on LinkedIn. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out there and people can find me. And I, I really hope, uh, you know, people get something from the book itself and the various uh, articles that, have, that I've written. Um, There's a big piece in The Guardian last week. Um, and people can just Google around and, and, and find me. But I really hope people will, will, will enjoy the book. Um, so it's not just about policy, as you know. It's <clears> also, there's awful lot of really quite interesting cases which which kind of bring it all together over many years, murder trials and big drugs cases and and and, and all sorts. And, and I think people get a lot from it. And I hope, I hope, I hope they will enjoy it. And, and, and I hope they'll let me know on social media what they think either way. Uh, thanks again, Chris. It was great to speak with you and for, and for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. Good to meet you. And thanks for your time. Thanks so much for listening to another instalment of the More From Law podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the show and make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and sign up to my newsletter over at www.harryclarklaw.com. You can also follow me on most social media channels at the handle Harry Clark Law. If you enjoyed the show, please give it a rating and a review on the iTunes store as this helps others learn about the show and be sure to share it with your networks. You can also support the show by donating to my Patreon, which helps support the running and production costs of the show. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.